Hello, you're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, and it may be found on page 790 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. Before we come to our passage in Matthew 14, we need to know what has just happened. Earlier in the chapter, John the Baptist was killed. King Herod Antipas, son of the so-called Herod the Great, the one who ordered all the male babies to be killed around the time of Jesus' birth, called for John's head. At Herod's lavish birthday celebration, he offered his stepdaughter and grandniece, who's one and the same person because there just aren't that many branches on the Herod family tree, he offered her any gift she desired for a dance that she performed for him. The girl's mother whispered in her daughter's ear, I want John the Baptist's head. John had been preaching an unpopular word in some circles about repentance and against infidelity and incest. His sermons were not well received by Herod's wife, who also happened to be Herod's niece. So you see her problem with him. So earlier in Matthew 14, John's life ended violently, and his death had been celebrated at a birthday party rife with overabundance and gluttony. It sets a stark contrast to the very different kind of meal on a hillside that follows. So it's important for us to know the sad news Jesus just received when we come to our passage. He just heard that his good friend, his cousin, and mentor is dead. Jesus would not have been the only one to have heard this gruesome news. We're told in our passage that the crowds had also heard. The people are understandably frightened, and they're seeking Jesus for comfort and guidance. Here we come to verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, They followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. 
And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I recently watched the National Geographic miniseries, A Small Light, based on the story of Meep Gies, friend and employee of Otto Frank, who helped his family and four other Jews live in a hiding place for over two years in Amsterdam during the Holocaust. Several of the scenes in this series recount all that Meep had to do to find food for these eight people without shopkeepers and butchers catching on to how many people she was actually feeding. Without enough ration books, she had to make up stories of visiting family members, and she had to strategically coordinate her shopping throughout different neighborhoods on different weeks. What one might assume was just a large grocery run was actually hours and hours of work on foot and bicycle every day, shopping in small bunches, so she was never seen carrying large grocery bags. In her diary, Anne Frank wrote, Meep is just like a pack mule. She fetches and carries so much. Almost every day she manages to get hold of some vegetables for us and brings everything in shopping bags on her bicycle. During their 25 months in hiding, food was precious. Wartime shortages meant that meat was a rarity, and the residents of the annex often ate the same food for weeks. For days on end, it was spinach or chicory, lettuce or beans. Anne writes in her diary of sauerkraut for lunch and sauerkraut for dinner. Yuck. <laughs> it wasn't long before all the average citizens in Amsterdam were also feeling the food shortages. By the end of the war, most people were trying to make a soup out of anything and often went to bed hungry. It's hard for many of us to relate, I imagine. But the folks on that hill in Matthew's miracle story would have been familiar with the feeling of an empty belly. They were colonized peasants, overworked, underpaid, and malnourished. These men, women, and children knew the agony of an empty table. The hour was late. People were no doubt hungry. But no one in the crowd besides the disciples is grumbling for food. The people aren't asking Jesus for anything. They just want to be with him. He's so different from any other leader they had ever seen before. They're hungry, they're frightened, they're hurt, and they hang on Jesus' every word and action. He has shown them something special. He has given them a glimmer of hope, and he has shown them that the character of the God he reveals can be captured in one word, compassion. Jesus knows how the people are feeling. John is gone, and they are sad, 
and they are afraid. Even in the midst of his own sadness, Jesus reaches out to heal their sick. He spends the whole day in conversation with them, and then he chooses to feed them. In first century Galilee, gods aren't supposed to care about these kinds of people. The gods of ancient philosophers aren't supposed to care about humans at all. They're supposed to be dispassionate and removed from what is happening on earth down below. Greek and Roman gods are notorious for using people as playthings and ordering the world according to their own whims. They take the side of the rich and the powerful. They definitely are not known for siding with the oppressed, the ordinary, the downtrodden, and the hungry. Yet, this God does care. A God who cares. This is the first real revelation in this scene. What a miracle. The next miracle is just who Jesus chooses to use. He'd been doing miraculous things all day, healing the sick, caring for the poor. What is amazing here is that he doesn't choose to go about this action alone. At this point in the gospel, the disciples still have their proverbial training wheels on, as Matt Skinner describes them. But like a good teacher, Jesus turns the question around on them. You give them something to eat. And here we have the second miracle of the story, that Jesus uses ordinary people. So it's not just about what Jesus does, but what the disciples are invited to do. There are two marks of discipleship that we see here in this scene. The first is compassion. There's a God who cares. And the second is a vision for possibility. Jesus sees the potential in these imperfect, ordinary, doubtful men. Now, Herod's kingdom is a kingdom of scarcity. In Herod's kingdom, you're either in or you're out. The whole structure is meant to keep most people out so that he can maintain power and authority. And yet a man preaching against sin and the, and the infidelity like John out in the wilderness was enough to make a powerful man like Herod quake in his sandals. Martin Niemöller, a German Lutheran pastor who heroically opposed Adolf Hitler, was a young man when he first met with Hitler as a part of a delegation in 1933. Niemöller simply watched and listened to the soon-to-be Fuhrer from the back of the room. And when he got home that night, Niemöller told his wife, I discovered Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Herod was a terribly frightened man. He had succumbed to the myth of scarcity. We know a little bit what that's like. For those of us who live through the grocery store and toilet paper runs of 2020, we know what it's like to be afraid that we won't have enough. Enough things, enough money, enough control of our future. And our problem is like the problem of those 12 disciples who suffer from a case of amnesia. We forget what God can do. We forget what God has offered. We forget the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and we worry about tomorrow. The disciples say, the hour is late, and we have nothing to feed them. Like the disciples, we notice the limitations. We worry that we are not equipped, or we do not have enough. 
We know this feeling pretty well. We know the familiar feeling of keeping up and the fear of being overwhelmed. And we forget. We revert to the kind of thinking where we believe we have to do it all ourselves, forgetting the expanse and freedom of God. We can be so paralyzed by our own anxiety that we forget the thousands of times God entered in and made a way when there seemed no way. Now, there were a lot of people claiming to do miracles in Jesus' day. The difference in this miracle, the difference in this bounty of grace, is who is directed toward. What the miracle is here is not necessarily the increasing loaves, though they are amazing and miraculous, but the radical shift in who the disciples are called to be. You give them something to eat. There are 12 baskets left over. That's no coincidence. 12. One enough for each disciple. This bizarre banquet in the middle of nowhere is so different from the feast that Herod prepares. This eating until you are filled is so different from the world Rome allows. Matthew describes what happens when you move from scarcity, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish, to abundance. Thank you, God, for this gift of five loaves and two fish. The disciples, despite whatever their initial skepticism or doubt might have been, are caught up in Jesus' words of abundance and gratitude. They distribute what they have, and they participate in the joy that all ate and were filled. This story was an old favorite in the early church, told over and again. The folks on that hill? Matthew never tells us that they even realize a miracle has occurred. But for the early church, looking back in on it, the miracle was clear. It captured the essence of Jesus, the compassionate, loving Son of God. It captured the essence of God's abundant grace and generous gift to us with 12 baskets left over, one for each disciple to carry. It captured the essence of our lives, who having seen the miracles of God day after day all around us, we still doubt and wonder if this will be enough. It can be hard for us to imagine what one ordinary disciple or what an ordinary group of disciples can do. Sometimes the need seems so great. The problem is overwhelming. The trouble is too large. We are so few. But Jesus showed the disciples. Jesus shows us how to move from scarcity, we have only five loaves and two fish, to abundance. Thank you, God, for five loaves and two fish. Decades after the war, whenever speaking to schools and in public gatherings, Meep Gies always closed her presentations with the same line. She would say, any of us, even an ordinary secretary or an ordinary housewife or an ordinary teenager, can, within our own small ways, turn on a small light in a dark room. God can take a small gift, a small light, a small meal, and make it multiply. All ate and were filled. And I believe the miracle continues. Whenever a child donates his lemonade stand money to the Presbyterian Community Center, when a college grad puts a high-paying job on hold to work for Teach for America, 
when a woman uses a week of her vacation time to chaperone other people's children on a church youth trip, when a man has his lunch at an elementary school cafeteria and shows a group of third graders what it means to show up week after week and to care about them. God is still at work performing miracles through his disciples. God gives us power to work for good in the world. When Jesus told the disciples to feed the 5,000 men plus women and children, they thought it was impossible. The needs were so great, their resources so few. But then Jesus takes what we have. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it. The promise is that God will be with us, blessing us. It is not a promise of the absence of struggle or pain. Even Jesus knew the grief of losing someone he loved. Even Jesus had to go the way of the cross. But it is a promise that God will be with us, a God of compassion and a God of possibilities. He was with us and all around us and helping us every day. And somehow, this is more than enough. Thanks be to God. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.